morning, everybody. Glad to preach to you today. As mentioned, we'll, I'll preach on Mark 6, verses 7 to 44, and Psalm 23 will also be mentioned throughout the preaching. Last Lord's Day, we finished a section in Mark 5 and 6, where people were amazed about what they saw of Jesus. And they asked, they kept on asking, who is this? In it, we've seen, five and, chapter 5 and 6, we've seen Jesus demonstrating power that only God had by doing things that only God could do. We've seen his displays of power, and people seemed to be more afraid even of Jesus after the power or the display of power had happened than from what the power was there to fix, in a sense. They're more astonished by his miracle and what he does. One would think it would be obvious to those who viewed him perform all these things to see that he is not just a man, that he is God. It should have been enough, but we have seen time and time again through Mark that it was not. They looked at him and they shunned him. Many, even his family, his hometown, they, they disbelieved, they were offended. In today's message, I'll begin the third preaching tour in Galilee. Well, I won't, but I'll cover the third preaching tour of, of Jesus. And in this tour, he will give more and more responsibility to his disciples as they go about sharing the gospel, doing actually what he has been doing, healing, cleansing people from demons, and first and foremost, proclaiming the word. And uh, in this section, in this today's preaching, we'll cover, as we saw in the Bible reading, that Jesus will send his disciple, and at the end, Jesus will receive the disciples. And in the middle, there's a portion where one disciple is cruelly killed. One commentator said or remarked on the, it's called the sandwiching method where the top and the bottom are similar or the same and then something else is inserted into the middle for a contrast or for a point. And one commentator puts it, the fact that Marx inserts the execution of the baptizer in the context of the sending and the return of the twelve on their first mission journey forces readers to consider what John's death means for discipleship and mission with Jesus. I'll repeat. So the commentator puts it that we are forced to try to figure out what this means for discipleship. That in the sending and the coming and going of disciples, one is killed. And as we'll see, it was not the chronological order that they were sent. He was killed and then they came back. But Mark has taken this, this section and put it in there for reason, as we will see. So this tension and the tension of trust is what we will look at today. Last time I preached from Mark, I gave you a summary of what, what has already happened in Mark. Jesus was pronounced by John, the voice in the wilderness, as being the king and just after he's called by God the Father, ripping apart the sky, 
proclaiming loudly that Jesus was the beloved Son. We will today hearken back to Jesus' first words in Mark. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel is the underlying aspect of today's text. And therefore, this is also the foundation of the sermon. This kingdom is actually one of the fundamental aspects of Mark. The kingdom of God being one of those that we will look at today. And discipleship being the other main theme. Jesus is saying in Mark 1 that the kingdom has already arrived with Jesus, with his person. And through this series, I hope that you've seen that it develops and grows as I pray it does in all of you and all of us. In chapters 3 and 4, we made distinctions between insiders and outsiders, if you will. And there we got these parables about the soil, good soil, bad soil, and the kingdom of God as a tree that grows. As the melodic line that I've orchestrated for this book, I call it, Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth in full as the messianic king, and he teaches us how to be worthy of that kingdom by becoming his disciples. So a disciple and kingdom is extremely connected in Mark. And after then, last sermon, being denied in Nazareth, Jesus and his disciples went about among the villages teaching. Having called, des- designated, and taught his disciples, Jesus will in this section send them out to do what he did before Jesus moves on and moves away even from witnessing to Jews. He will then finish his preaching tour in the Jewish Galilee and will move on to witness other places. After this, Jesus will only on brief occasions return to Galilee before his final journey to Jerusalem. But let us not now look at the, today's text and see this multifaceted, this different, so many aspects of what it means to be a disciple. It is responsibility, it is sacrifice, and it is ultimately to be sustained. Let's look at this. And I've, as you've seen in Bolton, I've called it Dependence on Christ. And I have a longer title for myself, which is called Dependence on Christ Leads to Perseverance. Dependence on Christ leads to perseverance, and we'll see what this is. And we are looking at, first, depending on Christ to provide. Second, depending on Christ to endure. And thirdly, depending on Christ to be sustained. And I'll repeat these as we go. That's my first point then. Depending on Christ to provide, we'll look at the first section where Jesus sends off his disciples. And as I opened, we look at the sending of the return of the disciples with a John, the killing of John in the middle as the second point. And we'll see in both, in both section one and three that there's a risk, there's a work, there's a need. The disciples could not then, and we cannot now, do in our own power. There's a tension in the Christian life in living a life where we ultimately and in everyday life, we have to trust God with our life, our breath, our thoughts, our actions, our words. 
and our flesh that wants to do it all alone in its own strength. But then to heighten the tension, in the second part, we see that ultimately there's a tension that disciples can lose their life. Verse 6 ends with saying, And he went among the villages teaching, and continues verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over their unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed the people should repent. As I mentioned, that Jesus' first words are, The kingdom is here, so repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed men and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they leave Nazareth and they go about in villages. And as they are, Jesus calls them to him, instructs them to go out, to spread out from the group they'd been in, these 12 and Jesus, going about as a collective group. And now he sends them two by two after giving them instructions for what to do. They have followed Jesus as this peripatetic teacher, a teacher who walks about and continues to teach his disciples as, as they live, as they move, as they walk. And now they have, they have gone with him, but Jesus now sends them off by themselves, alone from him. But Jesus has taught them and has taught others as he went about. And as he did, he prepared his disciples to be sent off, to be sent. They've already done this once in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, they were given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. We, we, having the full revelation of the scriptures, know that a part of what this mystery is, is that Christ uses his people to tell of this kingdom to the world. Christians are never just disciples or learners. All Christians are to be sent out, in a sense, to live their lives in the world for God. As Jesus says in the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. A disciple is one who goes out and makes more disciples. And as earlier in Mark, the focus and the work they will be doing is primarily teaching. Not only teaching, but primarily teaching. Because throughout the Bible, we rarely to never see that a miracle is performed or a mighty work is done alone for that value of its own. Rarely. It is done to authenticate the performer of these works so that people will listen to the teaching of that person. The point of Mark is to show us that the kingdom has come into the world and it teaches us how we are to behave and believe in light of that. A miracle in itself can surely benefit someone. Getting healed is a benefit. Getting sustained is a benefit. Receiving a miracle is a benefit in its own right. But as we see, it can impress people. They see it, as we've seen in Mark. Many are impressed by what they see, but it doesn't move their hearts. They're just impressed. They just see it, and it's, wow, a miracle. But as Jesus himself said, 
they need, well, the truth is that they need the gospel alongside with it. And as Jesus said in chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Because even as we saw in chapter 3, when Jesus had performed miracle, some thought it was the devil who had done it. Seeing miracle does not equate, it doesn't equal at once that, oh, this is God doing it. So, well, a real miracle can only be performed by God. People didn't see it as that, to clarify. And so Jesus sends them out to do these things, mighty works and teach, which was not a common practice by Jewish rabbis to send out the disciples to preach in name only and not with the, the rabbi they were with. And he called the twelve and began to send them out. To send them out, this apostoline in Greek is the verb form of the Greek noun apostolos, one sent forth from where we get our word apostle. A disciple is a learner, and an apostle is one who is commissioned by his master to go out in the master's name. As we can see in Ephesians 2.20, it tells us that the prophets and the apostles are the foundations of the church. They have the apostolic authority, and it is this authority that we see Jesus gives out here, these specific 12. They had the authority they were given by the one who sent them. They were the sent out ones. Maybe it is comforting for us, knowing that they, they were sent, fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people, not the top drawer of Pharisees. They were flawed. They did not fully understand, fully grasp, fully see, as we will also see that the disciples still make mistakes. They still misunderstand, but yet they were sent. The message and the fulfillment of God's plan does not depend on the one sent, but on the sender. Not on the merit or degree of holiness of the missionary, but by the authoritative call to, that says go and by the equipping of our Lord Jesus. So we see some details here about the sending out in pairs two by two, practical, comforting, company and counsel of, and diversity of gifts and talents, but more so because it also fulfilled some, some scripture from Deuteronomy 19 or a Jewish requirement, one might say that by the evidence of two or three, a case was established or a charge was set true. Mark tells us that Jesus gave them authority to, over unclean spirits to drive them out and to command obedience of them. So although the main charge was to preach, a powerful and important point is made here about the spirits, about subduing and casting them out. There was no clearer sign or no clear um, point or something that they could see that could accompany them than the, the casting out of demons and healing. Ordinary people, don't, they don't do that normally. So if you see, like we saw when Jesus cast out legion from the man, people knew that something special was about this man. And so they also get this power, if you will. 
as in an earlier message, I pointed out that if, if people saw evil spirits being cast out, they ought to know that, as Jesus said, says, that the finger of God is there at work, signaling the inbreaking of the messianic reign. So it's not that they were just sent as heralds, messengers. They were not just sent to people to proclaim, in a sense, but also to people, but also to proclaim and herald to the demons that the kingdom of God was there and it was expanding. The kingdom of God, kingdom of God was at hand. Back in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses was sent to lead the people of Israel out of their bondage. Moses hesitantly asked God, how will they believe me? How will they know that you have sent me? Why should they believe me of all people? They, they knew me as this prince who lived in the palace. Why would they follow me? How would they trust that God had sent them? And God says, throw your walking stick on the ground. It turns it into a snake. He picks it up and turns back into staff again. And God says, put your hand under your, your cape or your, your coat. And when he tur- took it out again, it was white with leprosy. And he put it in again and out, and it was healed. So God showed Moses real, tangible, viewable, almost touchable power and told, told Moses to show, show the same power to Pharaoh and the people. He threw water on the ground and turned to blood. The power would authenticate the messenger. Back to our own text. In verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Here comes instructions on where to stay, how to equip themselves, and provide for themselves. They were to travel light, and this harkens back to the night when the people of Israel, they escaped Egypt. They were to leave Egypt in haste. And in fact, they were only to bring a cloak, belt, sandals, and staff. So these two instructions are the same. You are to carry one cloak, one staff, belt, and sandals. The exact parallel of the wordings suggests, at least strongly, that as the Twelve would go out on this mission, it was a fundamental and as extreme, in a sense, as the exodus of of Egypt. And as Israel of old was to trust the provision of God, the disciples were too. In Psalm 23, we sang and read, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff were two of the equipments of a shepherd. The staff was a walking stick and a, almost like a crook. If you've seen the, the staff with a hook on it, it was to guide sheep, even pull them in if they went awry or went into to dangerous places. The rod was more of a cudgel, a weapon for defense. But Jesus says, you may only bring a staff. You may only bring a staff, not a not a rod. Because as the shepherds defended their, their sheep from wild animals or thieves, they were only allowed to bring the bare minimum. No food, no bag, no money, no extra clothes. The minimal baggage 
was not a virtue in a sense by itself. Like, you will be so much holier by walking with minimum stuff, as some in that time era said. Like, if you have a good pair of shoes, bring them. If you have a poor pair of shoes, bring them, because that's much holier. And if you don't even have shoes, that's supremely holy. It was not the same kind of school of thought. It was not the virtue in itself to bring little, but it is that when you have little, you, you cannot depend on your gear, in a sense. Jesus wanted them not to put their trust in their items, but in their God. Imagine yourself, or either going alone or with someone else, on a trip somewhere. I know that when I'm going somewhere, even if it's just a one-day trip, a weekend or something, I bring so much and more than I need. Do I need three, four pairs of socks? Let's bring six, just to be on the safe side. Two pair of shirts? No, four. Four is enough. I never use it, but I always, in a sense, overcompensate because I want to be prepared. I want to be ready. There's nothing wrong with being prepared, but here Jesus says that you don't need to bring your provision with you. I will be your provision. I will provide for your every need. You don't need to bring any extra in case, just in case. God will provide. The extra extra cloak was used as a double up, as a blanket or as a pillow. But God said, you don't need to sleep out. You don't need to bring food because you'll be sustained where you are. You will be let in and cared for. Trust me. They were indeed making themselves totally dependent on Christ to provide for them. How long could they go without food or money to, bring, to buy new food? They would be dependent on Christ. And then Jesus hints that someone will open up their house to you. But if they won't, shake the dust that is off your feet as a testimony to them. They would have to shake the dust off their feet, which was a Jewish practice. If a Jew traveled in a Gentile area, when they entered, actually when they approached the border, they would have to wipe off or dust off the dust because it was dust from an unholy place. It was not Israel dust. It was not holy dust in a sense. It was deemed unclean. And the disciples understood this being Jews. They understood that they shouldn't bring that, in a sense, pagan world back into the true Israel. If they were rejected, they were to, in, in a sense, call that place unclean, pagan, heathen, because they would not hear the message and would not welcome the disciples. They were either, the people who received them were either opened or closed to them. It was not a neutral ground. This is very much judgment talk. And what is the subject of what they're preaching? So they went out and preached that people should repent. They went out, they preached, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And later, we'll see, they returned. They were provided. They depended on Christ in their mission and God provided for them. They came back, they survived, and they did the mission. They completed their work. They were dependent 
on Christ. And so we should always remember that we are totally dependent on Christ. He makes the grass and the wheat grow. He makes the sunrise each morning and sets it each and every night. There's no automation in it. I don't know if you've seen in a classroom somewhere or, or a, in a museum, almost like a clockwork model of planets going on an axis. And if you put it, if you put it on, it all just spirals where it's supposed to go. That's now not how the universe works. Nothing does that. Nothing goes on by itself. As the late R.C. Sproul said, there is not one piece of cosmic dust that is outside the scope of God's sovereign providence, provision. Every person, every animal, every plant, the whole of creation, down to its minuscule, minuscule molecule, is dependent on God's sovereign providence for their existence. And when we realize that, that will change how you think, how you speak, what you do. And believe you me, it will change how you view Christ as your provider. Not just for your salvation, but for your life, for your sustenance, for providing everything. God is Yahweh Jireh, God our provider. My second point then, moving on to the story about John the Baptist. So I mentioned in the beginning that Mark puts this section as a sandwich, in a sense, it's called the sandwiching method. And it's usually done to highlight or contrast something. Here it gives attention to what it means to be a disciple. And I said at the beginning that I would argue that the point is not only tension to the original audience, but also for us. In the whole of Mark, there are only two places where the point or the focus or the story does not revolve around Jesus. So in all of Mark, it's all about Jesus, except for two places. One in, John, one in Mark 1, when it says about John the Baptist baptizing, calling out for repentance, proclaiming that the king will come, make way for him. And this, we see John baptizing and calling for repentance, making straight the way for the king to arrive. And here he will function as the forerunner of Jesus' own death later on. Both are executed by political forces who fear them. John died a martyr, one who had died a witness or died witnessing. And his death both prefigures Jesus' death, but also what can happen to Christians who follow Jesus. Not something we like to talk about, but it is, it is true. A Christian is one who lives his or her life differently because they are a Christian, because they follow Christ. And by word or deed, this will or should make people stop and stare for a while at our lives because of who we follow. Here in John's case, a world of greed, power, corruption, wealth, Mortal and ethical downfall, it leads John's witness to his death. What really, I ask, is the difference in our society today? So to summarize a little bit, this is a long portion of text. I won't go it by it word by word. 
But Herod, Herod the Great ruled Palestine as a vassal king under the Roman Empire from 37 to 4 BC, before Christ. This Herod the Great is the one we can read about in the accounts surrounding Jesus' birth. When he died, the, his kingdom was divided into four and given to his four sons. One of these sons is Herod Antipas, one of four, actually, different Herods in the Bible. And he was a tetrarch, a ruler of a fourth, and he ruled Galilee and Perea. Herod had ruled about 30 years, and then he starts hearing about this miracle worker, and the text makes him seem nervous about it. Verse 14 says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, it's John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracle, miraculous powers are at work at him. While others said, he's Elijah. And others, he's a prophet like the prophets of old. The prophet. But when Jared heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Until, until now, John had been the more famous of the two, John and Jesus. He had been a true prophet from of old in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Herod knew about John very well, very well indeed. Herod had actually imprisoned John and killed him and now thought it was John who had come back haunting him. Herod's family tree is, some, some guy called it, it's more twisted than an olive tree. It's twisted beyond recognition. They were cunning, the Herod's family. They were shrewd. They schemed and murdered each other, left, right, and center. Antipas had, Herod Antipas had persuaded Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Herod Philip, to divorce Herod Philip and instead marry him, Herod Antipas, the one we read about here. And he got rid of his own wife. He shipped her off somewhere. John spoke about this, and so Herod had him arrested. And it, the text implies that G John kept talking about it, that you're sinning. You're, you can't marry your brother's daughter, your brother's wife. <laughs> and you shall definitely not divorce your own wife to do it, or make him or her divorce her, his, well, <laughs> her husband, like Herod one. He shipped off his wife to somewhere. Herod two, Herod one wanted his wife. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. So we shift to a birthday party, previously, and and uh, back in the back into the future in a sense, where Herod had invited the most high and lofty people, the officials, the the rulers, the military might of the area, to his birthday party, or at least some form of celebration. And uh, the daughter of Herodias, the foul woman in this scene, he, she sent his da her daughter to perform for the party. And it hints that it was not an innocent kind of dance. The dance pleased Herod and the guests so much that Herod loudly and boisterously promised her anything up to half his kingdom, which was not his to give, he was just a vassal under Rome, so he had no real power in the sense. He could, not, he could not give her anything. But what she asked for was the head of John the Baptist because of her mother insisted upon it. And so Herod then has John killed. 
back into the present, John, Herod is haunted by the idea that someone would come back from the dead, which usually was viewed as judgment by on God, of God, by his enemies, which would, in this case, be Herod. They were speaking about Jesus, yet some said, it must be Elijah. Others said, it must be the prophet or a prophet. But he said, no, Herod's guilty heart insists that it is John coming back to get him. As Jesus sends out his disciples and as they preached in his name, Jesus' name had become well known. And this is how Herod gets word of it. I don't know how long John endured in prison, but endured he did until he died. So in many ways, his endurance let him stay faithful to the end because that is a way to endure. John preached repentance from sin to all walks of life. He preached faithfully to Pharisees and everyday people and even to the rulers. And because of it, he died at the hand of his enemies. There's a saying, desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. John was truly a brave man. He thundered out against unrighteousness, and like the prophets before him in the Old Testament, he understood his task. He was bold and courageous, and this led to angry people who wanted him silenced. In this text, we also see foreshadowing of Mark 8, 34, which I'll read. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I don't think John knew he was walking towards his martyrdom at the outset of it, but he was faithful where he was, and that led him to being martyred. But along the way, he persevered, he endured by Christ. Martyrdom is not something that we speak much about in the church, especially the Western church today, but it is spoken about in the Bible, so I must talk about it. Brothers and sisters, and sisters we do not know what is in store for us in our life or what awaits us down the, down the line. We may be on our own way, in our, on our way to our own kind of martyrdom, or maybe not. We don't know. The only one who knows that is our Lord and Master who commands us all. And we don't know how he will call us home one day. But calls home he will, and he gets to determine the path. And we are called to be faithful in it, to be bold and courageous in our lives. Let us hear God's words to Joshua and apply them to our own lives. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We will find that Jesus is the how and the why we endure. Lastly then, depending on Christ to be sustained. The disciples return to Jesus and tell us of what they've done and taught. He calls them to be by themselves and rest. Yet as they are traveling to the appointed place, 
they are followed by a multitude. They recognize them and they follow them. And when Jesus sees this great crowd who followed them, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So the disciples have been out, in and out it seems, and Jesus calls them to rest and recover, but they're disturbed by thousands who come to them. Earlier, it has been crowds who almost crushed Jesus to touch him because they wanted him to heal them. But in this section, we see them coming and staying for a long time because Jesus preached to them and taught them for so long. And the disciples are asking him, aren't you going to send them home soon? They need food. They need to go home. And Jesus says that they would be fed by Jesus and the disciples. He would sustain them. They would be sustained by Jesus. And enduring is to keep holding on, and the sustaining is to enable the enduring. Enduring is to be able to, be able to hold on to a bar or something, and sustaining would, would mean the food, the rest that makes you able to do so. The food, if you will. The Greek word here that is given as compassion or moved with compassion is apparently the only is only used about Jesus in the whole New Testament. This kind of compassion, it was deep level of compassion, deeper than human concern and empathy. He saw the crowds running to him, gathering, and he looked at them with compassion because they didn't have a shepherd. If you have a sheepfold, sheepfold without a shepherd, they're just as aimlessly as if they were blind. They can just walk about with no sense and no goal, no plan. He saw them as blind and he moved, was moved with compassion. Another as other time when he was moved to face crowds with almost anger, but here he showed them compassion. In the Old, the Old Testament, several prophecies say that the Messiah is this shepherd king. He is the good shepherd, the one who would lay his life down for his sheep. And even as we read the scripture verse from the Old Testament this morning, we see that he let the crowd, in a sense, settle down in the green pastures and fed them, both by word and by, with food. Jesus loved to teach people and that was the main way they were fed. We and other churches who dutifully expound the word of God week by week, as under shepherds, we feed Jesus' sheep. This is what ordinary means of grace means, to preach the word and to read it and to sing it. And the word is our focus. That is the thing that enables us to live. That is what sustains us through our life, through week by week, we get more food. We get to sit down in green pastures and he prepares a table for us that we can come and eat from. And this enables us to live out our lives for the glory of God in the world. The disciples could not see how they would feed them all. As they said, should we buy food for 200 denarii, which would be about 200 days or about a year's wage? Jesus tells them to figure out what was in the camp, and it turned out to be five loaves and two fish. 
Jesus blessed it. They all ate their fill. They were satisfied, the text says, and they had loads of it left. After 5,000 men, and Matthew adds women and children too. We don't know what Jesus prayed as he blessed the food, but a common Jewish table prayer was, Praise be to you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. Fitting. He provides food for us. There's a parallel text in Numbers 11 when God brought food for a whole camp of Israel in the desert. And we shall not forget that this also points us to Mark 14 with the Last Supper where he blesses the bread and gives gives it to his disciples. Finally then, the miracle of turning five bread and two fish is showing that Jesus is God. It is a very strong connection to 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44. So 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44. A man came from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruit, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And Elisha said, give, it, give to the men that may, they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give it to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. And so he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. In a sense, Jews who had heard this story would have thought, Wow, God is powerful. He turns 20 loaves of bread to enough food for a hundred here Jesus shows that he feeds five thousands and thousands more with, f- with five loaves and two fish. One could argue that the size of 20 loaves was enough for 100, but you can never trick your way or explain away that five loaves of bread and two fish could be enough for thousands and thousands of people. And this is one of the clearest accounts we have in the New Testament where it shows that God God creates matter. We have it in the the Old Testament, of course, in creation. But in the New Testament, here here we see that God creates something, in a sense, out of nothing. He had the fish, but the fish cannot multiply by themselves. The bread cannot just make more bread. When my wife makes bread, it oozes up, it It grows but it cannot multiply. She's not God, and none, n- nor are we. There are two and five, yet he broke it and multiplied. And again, the miracle is well for the ones receiving it. They were fed, probably tested wonderfully, but above all, it authenticates Jesus not just as a prophet, as the course of Herod said, but that he is God's son. This is the message, brothers and sisters, that the king is here. The kingdom is advancing through the teaching and receiving of that kingdom. And we will, in fact, continue to see allusions to Exodus, not from Egypt, but from Israel, in a sense, as Jesus brings people to himself by his and by the ministry of his disciples. Later on in Mark. John the Apostle says much about Jesus' direct word on this, one in particular. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Friends, this text shows us that following Jesus involves bearing witness to what he has said. 
even though it might cost us. But while in it, he sustains us. So depend on him. Let us pray.